the roadmap for technology law podcast from the team here at Bristos. My name is Vic Karana. I'm a partner here at Bristos. And I'm joined by my very special guest today, Angela Fouracre, who is a partner in our technology disputes team. Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks, Vic. So Angela's joining me today to talk about failure, in particular, why the types of digital transformation projects we talk about on this podcast sometimes fail and what can be done when things go wrong. So this episode is actually the first of a two-parter on failure. Uh, So today, Angela and I are going to talk about mitigating the risk of failure by using some fresh thinking early on in the project and how to tackle problems as they emerge. And and then then in the next, uh, the second episode in this uh, two-parter, our colleagues Rob Powell and Anna Cook are going to talk about what to focus on when disputes on digital transformation projects actually do arise uh, and best practice when everything has really fallen apart, including what to look at first in your contracts and the kind of losses that you can and can't claim. So to kick off this episode, uh, Angela, we know that failed IT and tech projects are nothing new, but certainly in the last sort of few years, I've noticed issues arising pretty regularly that are keeping us busy uh, and for very different reasons. So, so personally, I think um, a lot of the reason for that is because delivering the types of digital transformation that our clients are focusing on is getting more complex. If you think about, I don't know, collaborative delivery models like Agile or new technologies like AI and automation, and you've got multiple suppliers and contracts in the mix, you know, that all makes it very interesting for commercial lawyers like me. But I do wonder if that kind of complexity involved in transformation sometimes makes those projects much more difficult to deliver. So my sort of first question to, do, to, to you is actually about a recent failed project that went all the way to the Court of Appeal, and that involved a lot of this type of complexity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Vic. Um, so I think the one you're thinking of is uh, CIS General Insurance versus IBM. That's a really recent example of how this particular species of project can be particularly difficult to deliver. The first instance judgment came out in 2021, uh, but the appeal was only handed down uh, in April 2022 this year. So it's all, all very up to date. So just as a bit of scene settings, CIS General Insurance is part of the co-op group. And back in the day, they shared uh, with the co-op bank a network infrastructure, a data center, hardware, software, and applications. They were cumbersome. They were outdated. So when the decision was taken to separate out the co-op bank for regulatory reasons, it became apparent that the operation and maintenance cost of this shared platform would be sustainable. So... CIS uh, took this as an opportunity. They wanted a flexible and contemporary IT infrastructure, which would enable it to provide tailored services to its customers and to compete as a market-leading digital and database business. So they decided to purchase and implement a new IT solution for its business and entered into a contract with IBM for the supply of a new system for the insurance business, but also to manage the system for a term of 10 years. So just to give you a sense of the size of the transformation, the fees for the implementation were around 50 million, and for the management services payable over the life of the contract, um, a call at 125 million. So, 
the High Court's judgment runs about 175 pages, so there's no way we've got enough time today to look at the decision in any particular detail. But there were an, a, a few features of the dispute which I think are really worth drawing out for today's purposes. So I think number one was that uh, one of the major issues was that CIS subject matter experts couldn't be relied on to attend the Agile Sprint meetings. They failed to generate user stories at the planned rate to maintain progress, and they failed to adhere to their own out-of-box approach, piling in a disruptive list of new requirements whenever they did actually show up. Um, The second key feature was that IBM engaged an outfit called Innovation Group, um, a subcontractor to supply software and services for the insurance platform uh, using a really famous piece of software called Insurer Suite. However, they didn't have sufficient resource to perform the necessary customization and configuration work needed in the time frame, uh, and were also criticised in the judgment for their lack of planning management. And when, what they did actually produce was of questionable quality and repeatedly failed to pass user acceptance testing. And last but not least, IBM, as the prime contractor, uh, uh, they were found to have failed to have managed the programme and to provide accurate reports as to delays. So that gives you, I think, perhaps a good sense of some of the key issues. I'd say this is quite a typical project, typical issues arising, um, So and highlights some of the real difficulties. So, Vic, you work on these types of contracts all the time. Do you think the typical outsourcing contract actually helps to address these issues or can it sometimes hinder the project and actually make it harder to achieve success? Thanks, Angela. That's a really good question. And and cases like that keep me up at night after we've done contracts and deals, that sort of side, because I I, I still think it's the case that the typical contract that we see that's meant to deliver that really complicated kind of transformation, like you saw in that case, are still based on sort of traditional outsourcing arrangements where you've got the kind of customer on one side transferring a lot of risk over to a supplier who sort of takes on a lot of obligations and if they don't perform those, the customer's got lots of, kind of lots of legal rights and remedies. Um, so even though, and, and hopefully you agree with me on this, that it's often not the contract terms in of themselves that might cause the product to fail, I do sometimes think those contracts don't necessarily help to deliver a good outcome. Um, and so I think there's a few things that we as advisors could probably do better at the start of a project when you sort of helping in that setup in that drafting negotiation phase. Um, and I've got a sort of few themes here, I think, or three themes. One on kind of cultural fit and how you might think about that. Um, one about managing uncertainty at the start of a project. And then about the kind of remedies and thinking a bit more proactively about getting things back on track. So, so that first theme on cultural fit. Um, and by that, what I mean is making sure the parties are actually the right fit for each other and the teams are going to work well together. For example, on an agile project, like the, the, the CIS and IBM project, I think it's really important that the teams who are often a mix of customer and supplier people are going to be able to engage in an agile process, you know, attend workshops, and it sounds like that might not always have been in, in the case on, in that case. Yeah, make decisions at sprint meetings, you know, continuously assess the code as it's produced. And if they don't, um, is the supplier going to constantly complain about the user stories that might not be clear enough or the customer not properly participating? Because if that's going to be the case, then it might be that they're not right fit and the project should maybe go in a different direction. 
But then how do we as lawyers or advisors sort of think about that? Because we're used to kind of contracting for long initial terms where we just assume everything is like sort of run well. Well, we could think about setting up contracts in a way that sort of recognises that the project's still going to be delivered by actual human beings, at least before AI kind of completely takes over. And we could focus the early stages of those contracts on team alignment and ways of working, for example. So there's some time for the teams to develop those sort of joint working practices, which are going to be really important if the chance if the project's got a chance of succeeding. And look, if they don't work well, then you know either or both parties can maybe walk away and maybe even without a penalty. And that's quite a radical uh, change when you compare it to contracts where you know, quite often we're signing deals where the work's already started and being carried out um, before they're even signed, um, before there's a chance to get those kinds of human working practices in place. A second sort of theme, I think, is a, you know, a practical way to rethink how we do some contracts is around managing uncertainty. So we, as always, we always want our contracts to be certain legally, um, certainly, and, and also as to what's being delivered and to what timetable and at what price. But we should recognise that this kind of wave of transformation or change we're seeing in the market, quite often on those projects, there's going to be some uncertainty at the time you sign the contract. So if you think about an example where there's an artificial intelligence collaboration, you've got a supplier bringing its algorithms to the table, you've got the customer bringing some data sets and some you know high-level business objectives about what it might want to achieve about making better use of its data. But really, the specifics and the deliverables from that relationship aren't really defined or very clear. Yeah, I wonder whether we can get away from trying to transfer the risk of that kind of uncertainty onto one party. For example, in that case, could we create a phase early on in the contract where the, the teams do some joint investigation, set some joint objectives, and then follow through with all the usual rights and obligations once those objectives are, are clearer? And if you think about it, that could actually improve certainty later on so for example if you end up at week six of the contract term and the teams have agreed some specific ai projects that they want to build and implement then you could actually at that point define the kind of specific pricing models that could reward the supplier in the right way or how ip is going to be allocated commercially or even the kind of specific remedies that can apply if the ai project is right is late um, or not delivered so, you know the kind of delay payment calculations that are actually based on not getting a particular product into the consumer market on time or something. And so the last kind of area I think we could probably do a bit better is around remedies in the contract. So, you know, we spend a huge amount of time negotiating what I'd call hard remedies, termination and things like that, that will only really ever be used if there's a real systemic or relationship ending type of failure. But then on the ground, from what we hear, most of the problems we hear about are often much lower level or occur earlier on in the project life cycle. So could we spend a bit more time agreeing some more practical mechanisms that are more focused on getting the project back on track? Uh, I'm thinking of things like the early warning of reporting where before issues actually arise, the kind of things that it sounds like didn't happen in the CIS and IBM case. Um, thing, you know, a way of reporting that actually captures the intel that the customer needs to know about more information sharing between the parties, concepts like fixed first, settle later, so the project, the problem actually is solved before we work out who's responsible for it. 
Um, and also, given the number of suppliers and contracts that are often in the mix, having some sort of forum to, to manage disputes between the different vendors and the customers in, in play. We do see, sometimes see some of those mechanisms in different contracts. But I wonder, to be even more radical, could you give some comfort to the contracting parties that use those tools that they're not automatically going to be alleged to be in breach or not having still their end of the bargain if they decide to use them, to give them that sort of safer space to discuss those issues and delays they're sort of foreseen before they really become problematic. So those are sort of my theme, three themes of what I think can be done better. But, but Angela, despite everything I've said there, sometimes you just cannot get the project back on track, no matter what the contract says. So, so from your perspective, what are the typical problems and disputes you sort of see? And, and how do you think the teams might use the contract more effectively to, to manage them? Thanks, Vic. Um... So I agree. Sometimes you, it's really difficult to get projects back on track, even with you know really great contracts in place and lots of you know practical processes. Problems just can't always be averted or readily resolved. Um, the waters are often muddied where the parties haven't exercised available contract rights in the interest of preserving the commercial relationship, or failed to record project changes in accordance with the processes. Uh, in my experience, this can make the factual matrix of a digital transformation dispute particularly difficult to unpick later. Um, for digital transformation projects in particular, um, it's the diversity of the supplier ecosystem, the complexity of the tech, the collaborative processes like Agile, the enhanced customer role in delivery, the significant volumes of emails and instant messages, and the high, high turnover of staff where projects particularly long running which all create those particular challenges and are often the sources of disputes with this type of of, uh, transformation Um, parties frequently agree contractual processes and measures at the outset uh, with the intention that they'll be exercised to assist with the resolution of disputes but nevertheless you know frequently they are reluctant to utilize them to address problems for fear of souring relations However, if the parties get culturally aligned, as, as you're, you seem to be suggesting, Vic, I, I wonder whether those contractual mechanisms and remedies can actually be used to aid project delivery rather than always being a precursor to a dispute. So just thinking through a few examples, um, in my experience, suppliers who have engaged dedicated contract managers for particular transformations or projects who are actually charged with monitoring performance under the contract tackling issues and pursuing them to a resolution, even if it means difficult conversations early on, can be particularly effective. Because if issues are allowed to accumulate, they become more and more difficult to unravel and resolve. Um, Another example is change control. The contractual procedures can be difficult to use, given the range of exclusions and the layers of bureaucracy, meaning that compromises or variations are often not properly recorded. So if a contract was actually set up at the point that you're working on it, Vic, um, so that they can, these procedures can be used proactively and regularly to correct the course of projects and to catch up with the evolving needs of the project, it's more likely, I think, that the parties will agree changes Um, as they're happening, rather than let the project fester and to end up issuing significant change requests as a last resort or a defensive measure. Um, Another thing I see time and time again is um, around 
delay and failure to trigger relief provisions. So the complexity of digital transformation projects often means there's no single cause of delay. So by that, I mean that there's overlapping issues attributable to both customer and uh, a potentially a web of suppliers, or at least it's not that easy to identify. So there are processes masking the actual root causes of a delay. So when relief mechanisms are exercised, the other party's instinctive reaction is to be defensive. And left unaddressed, delay issues are notoriously difficult to unravel later down the line. Triggering a contractual delay mechanism can be an effective way of drawing out the parties' positions, including the underlying cause of the delay, allowing the parties to better understand what's gone wrong, to put corrective measures in place, and to get the project back on track, potentially avoiding further delay or failure. Um, another thing um, I think is worth thinking about is is attitudes towards triggering governance and dispute resolution procedures can be seen as a really aggressive move, uh, but they can actually be highly effective as they force the parties to take objective advice on their position and means that important issues are put in front of appropriately senior personnel at the right time. If escalation dispute resolution procedures are set up so that they're sufficiently flexible, they can be a really great way of bringing together multiple parties uh, in these complex digital transformation disputes. And just a final thought around audit and benchmarking. Uh, again, uh, triggering those rights can often be seen as a precursor to a formal dispute. But actually, you know, with the right thinking, one could look at them as a way to enhance the overall project. If the customer feels that it needs more oversight of a service because it's particularly complex or is concerned about issues like data security because it's a new type of tech, then exercising the audit rights can actually give them the comfort they need to continue. Um, similarly, if a customer is expecting innovation and new tech to provide price efficiencies, a benchmarking process can ensure ongoing value for the customer and actually help sustain the commercial relationship for long term, which is in the interest of, of everyone. Well, thanks, Angela. That is really interesting. I think I'm going to go take a second look at my change control courses on the deal <laughs> I'm working on. And it's always interesting to hear from you about how we commercial contracts lawyers to do things better. So thank you for that. Um, so to quickly sum up then, you know, it's pretty clear from that conversation that complex digital transformation programs pose all kinds of new challenges. And I think it's been clear that, you know, bringing in a fresh approach and thinking to that procurement, the negotiation, and then also the delivery and, and disputes management phases can help, like not necessarily avoid all problems, but at least provide a better framework for managing them when they when when they do arise. So actually we get what we actually want from those projects and they and they succeed. So um, to, to end then, um, do subscribe to this podcast or whichever platform you use uh, to ensure you automatically get the latest episodes as and when they are released, including the next one, the follow-up between our colleagues, Rob and Anna, the second part of the failure two-parter. Um, and we do hope this podcast will be useful and we'd like it to be as interactive as possible. So if you've got an idea or something you're particularly interested in, in us to cover, then let us know, uh, get in touch with us at the roadmap at ristos.com or use the hashtag the roadmap pod. Uh, and thanks for listening. We'll be back with the next episode soon. Bye.